Welcome to Talking Scripture with Mike and Bryce. I'm Mike Day. And I'm Bryce Dunford. And we're going to talk about Ephesians today. We're, we're going to try to stay ahead of Come Follow Me so that those of you that are out there um, in the audience listening will be able to use what we talk about and hopefully use it in your preparation. Right? Yep. That's our goal. So, Mike, let's talk big picture Ephesians. Tell me about the book of Ephesians and what do teachers and parents and students need to know about the big picture book of Ephesians. Okay, well, um, the book of Ephesians is really dealing with a lot of the problems that the early church had. Problems about uh, leadership, uh, problems about, um, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? But it also, there's some texts in here that really identify with Latter-day Saint audience. There's stuff in here about apostles and prophets. There's also some things in Ephesians that are a little bit difficult that we would take today as a modern reader and say, yeah, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily believe that, but it's in there and it's in Paul's world. Uh, what do you think, Bryce? Do you think maybe we'll start talking a little bit about Big picture, like you said, yeah. authorship maybe, and then get into in, get into how does this apply to our life? Right. One thing people need to know about Ephesians is this was this was this one is written to faithful people, as opposed to Galatians, which we did previously. Galatians is a rebuke to people who have gone astray. Hebrews is a plea to those who are holding on to something lesser to accept something greater. But Ephesians is really written to saints. Um, right there in the very first bit, verse, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So what this is about is trying to make Latter-day Saints better. Rather than come into the fold and leave your worldly ways behind, the question Paul's going to ask is, what do good people need to do to become better? And that's a whole different arena to be talking about is... How do you take the next step? See, sometimes we think that coming into the church and changing all of the bad habits that we have, that that we had to leave behind in order to come into the church, is the only change we have to make. Well, that's kind of a transition from telestial to terrestrial. But then we realize that membership in the church is going to push us up to a new level of change, kind of going from terrestrial to celestial. So a lot of the things we're going to talk about today are the challenges that good people have in becoming better. That's a good way to put it. Uh, in Galatians, like you said, clearly Paul's fired up. And I really do like the very beginning where he talks about you know, grace and peace to you that are followers. Yeah. And then right there in verse 1, right, he's talking to the saints which are at Ephesus, but also to the faithful in Christ. So it was a general letter. And maybe we'll start there. Um, the earliest manuscripts of Ephesians don't mention that it was written to Ephesians. In other words, there's a lot of evidence and scholarship that this was a general letter to the faithful followers of Jesus. And for those of you listening, I, I'm going to make a plug. Don't quit because at the end of this podcast, uh, we're gonna, I think we're going to make the case that the entire first chapter of Ephesians 1 is pretty awesome. It's, it's a temple text. It's a text that there's no way if you've uh, been initiated into the mysteries, as Paul is going to say it, there's no way that you can't see the veil language in here. Ephesians 1 has the words, but if you read the words and you slow down, 
and you understand the temple, there's a whole just awesome message that just pops off the page. And it's, it's section 93, it's Book of Abraham, it's First Temple Israelite Religion, it's John 1, in the beginning was the word. It's powerful. It's fulfilling. that He talks about predestination, which we would call foreordination. And then he also talks about being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which Latter-day Saints will recognize as a very significant phrase. These words are not to pull unfaithful people into the church. They are designed to take those who are striving to do what's right up to higher realms of, of worship and obedience. So oh, I like that. how do we fulfill our foreordination and be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise? And there's even a reference in chapter 1 to the dispensation of the fullness of times Which is when yeah. all things are being brought into one. So man, Latter-day Saints, buckle your seatbelts. Yeah. This is oh, quite a, a, a ride as we go through the book of Ephesians. Yeah, I was going to say dispensation of fullness of times is something that Latter-day Saints, our ears should tingle right when yeah. we hear that so okay i'm gonna geek out uh, to listeners who don't maybe this is your first time i call it geeking out on the bible a lot of the stuff i'm gonna say if you're teaching it you're not gonna teach this uh you're not gonna teach it to your kids probably they're probably not even gonna ask these questions but i think one of the strengths bryce and i have is we bring to the table some things to consider i think you you knowing more than you teach is a good practice we should all know more than we teach and so uh, like I said, some of this stuff uh, you may not teach, but it's good to know. So quickly, let's geek out just for a minute here on Ephesians. First, uh, in scholarship, this is the argument from scholarship, that perhaps that this is not totally Pauline, meaning that Paul, there, there are certain letters that are disputed that maybe he did not write. And the reason why is because of uh, syntax, terminology, and the way that the text is constructed. The sentences are much longer than the what are considered the genuine sentences or writings of Paul. And so imagine if you had an individual, say George Washington, and we had letters that were his, and we crunched it through a computer, and we saw how he spoke, and then someone came later and said, I found this letter by George Washington, and it was radically different. There's metrics by which we measure to see if this was George Washington. And so that being said, uh, these are arguments that scholars have, and I want to make a counter-argument to that, and it's a little bit complicated, so just bear with me. Uh, first, there, there's a book, and it's written about 100 years ago. It's by a, a guy by the name of Goodspeed, and Edgar Goodspeed wrote a book called uh, The Meaning of Ephesians. And in this book, in the last probably, oh, I don't know, 50 pages or so, he takes you, starting at about page 81, from page 81 to the end of the book, he shows you all the phrases in Ephesians and how the Greek and other writings of Paul, it's like identical. And so what Goodspeed's argument is basically this, that if Paul didn't write it, the people that constructed the writings of Ephesians were using the exact words of Paul. Uh, which reminds me of this quote by Elder McConkie. Remember that talk by Bruce and McConkie, Bryce? How does he say it? He says something like, Okay, I'm going to say some stuff, and you may recognize these words of other prophets, but then what? You may see, think that these are the words of the scriptures, words uttered by other people. Though they may have been written first by them, they are now mine. And it is as if the Holy Spirit of God had revealed them to me in the first instance. See, I look, Bryce just knows this stuff. It's so good. So, so I want to make this case that 
Okay, so maybe it wasn't actually written by Paul, but they're his words and they're his arguments. And they're being used in the time period, we think, right around 90 to 110 and 80. So after Jesus dies, uh, there's lots of different ways to view Jesus. And lots of different people have different ideas. There's the, the Ebionites that say things like, we've got to live the law of Moses. And there's Pauline Christians that say, you don't have to live the law of Moses. Well, later... Uh, there's this notion of the church and it becomes more organized and these arguments are being had around the turn of the century around 100 AD and so another argument and this is called the argument of ecclesiology and it's this argument that Ephesians is dealing with those issues and so one way to look at this text is that followers at Ephesus and I believe this I if if I had to pick I believe that the followers at Ephesus these are saints that know John's gospel. These are saints that have been initiated into the mysteries. They take the writings of Paul, perhaps. This is one way to view the text. And they package it in such a way to deal with those issues of their current age using the writings of Paul. And the reason why I believe this is their work or about them is because of the, the temple language in it. And so I think that's a fair argument. Um, also, a couple other arguments from scholarship briefly. Uh, the author espouses accommodation of the hierarchical values of the Roman world. What does that mean? We'll talk about household codes, but if you go to Ephesians 6, there's this notion of household codes and things that Christians today certainly don't believe in. The idea of the, the hierarchy of a household with slaves being a members of the household at the bottom. Those kind of things. Uh, Paul mentions that slaves need to obey their masters, and, and these kind of statements lend to the idea that the church is more established and it's trying to get a foothold with credibility in the Roman world. And so by talking about these rules, these household rules, uh, and in the way that it's phrased, it seems to lend itself to being in that time and place. One more reference, Ephesians 2, if I may. Ephesians 2, verse 2 says this, Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. To me, verse 3 of Ephesians 2 seems to lend itself that the author of the text is basically saying, I was a pagan, and then I found Jesus. And I don't know if Paul would have written that. Paul was more, shall I say, old school, Bryce? Yep. Anyway, so these are some of the arguments. I'm going to reference one more thing before, uh, well, okay, two more, before Bryce gets into, okay, how do we actually live this stuff? And my, the first thing I'm going to mention is this paper, and it's by Dan O'Bachman, and it's called New Light on an Old Hypothesis, The Ohio Origins of the Revelation on Eternal Marriage. And without getting too into it, uh, just know that this paper is dealing with the nature of the text of section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And essentially, what, he, what he's saying is that this text that we have canonized in our scripture is multiple texts that have been stitched together by later faithful followers of Joseph Smith. And... Uh, it's a, it's kind of a big argument. You know what? We'll, when we do a podcast on 132, Bryce, we're probably going to have to do multiple podcasts. And so the, the first part of 132, we'll, we'll get into the weeds of the text. But for the sake of argument for this 
podcast, I just want to say this is what Scripture is doing. It's always evolving and changing, and there's editing going on, and texts are being woven together. That's the meaning of the word text. So, Bryce, I wasn't there when Ephesians was written, but here's my thinking. We've got Paul's writings. A lot of Ephesians is going to be Colossians. Paul's saying a bunch of stuff. 100 AD comes, the the time period, 100 AD. The church is facing some problems, and Paul's words are recontextualized to deal with those problems, and it's bookended with some really cool temple texts, and in my estimation, I'm going to call it Paul. Is that is that fair? That's fair. And let me tell you why that's so symbolic, Mike, because the book of Ephesians about is about oneness. It is about coming together as one. And how cool that the book itself might very well be taking multiple texts from the Apostle Paul, multiple letters that he wrote from different people. It's kind of like a modern-day version of taking all of Elder Holland's conference talks and pulling them into one document. Yes. And that's kind of what we think Paul's doing here, or what the, the book of Ephesians is the result of multiple versions of Paul's letters, multiple letters, you might say, being pulled into one talk. So it's Paul's letters, but being kind of re-edited into one message, which ironically teaches how can we all come together into one body, one church, one religion. So the very message itself is symbolic of the very book itself, which is kind of cool. That is so awesome. I love geeking out on the Bible, Bryce. This is so fun. Um, I'm not going to say it now. I'm realizing that we, we can't have a podcast before hours. So let me just say this to the listeners. In the show notes, we're going to put show notes out there. I'm going to talk about levels of authenticity in the show notes. And we may do a podcast about this later. But everything Bryce said and everything I've just said all relates to this idea. And it's swirling around. Like, what does it mean to be the writings of Paul or the writings of Alma? And so I just know that it's not so simple. Yeah. Yeah. So, Bryce, why don't you take us through this to a teacher that's teaching their children or a gospel doctrine teacher or a Sunday school teacher, what are some things that you can take away and say, man, this really has traction? Yeah, so a couple, let's talk about oneness. It's amazing how often in the scriptures the Lord talks about one. In the Doctrine and Covenants, he says, if you're not one, you're not mine. And then when the Savior, after he concludes the sermon, uh, the Last Supper, and he takes them out to Gethsemane, the last thing he prays for, is oneness. You go through John chapter 17, the intercessory prayer, and Jesus, the last thing he prays for is oneness. He wants his people to be one. And that's what Ephesians, that's such a theme all throughout Ephesians, is how do we obtain this oneness? He talks about the old man versus the new man. How do we make them one? Uh, what we were before we were Christians and what we are now, how do we become one? And then even within the church, how do we become one? He talks about husbands and wives and how do we become one? And oneness is a major theme. So as you read through Ephesians, watch for that theme of oneness, but then ask yourself the question, how do we what how are these teachings of Paul leading me to obtain oneness? So let me just throw out a couple. Yeah, give I some love, examples. I love in chapter two, uh, verse fourteen. This is just beautiful wording. I just thank you, Paul. However, whoever put this together, man, I love these wordings. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Oh, I love that. The only way anyone, any group of people that have a wall between them 
is going to tear down that wall is through Jesus. No one else. There's no other way. The antidote to war, the antidote to conflict, the antidote to everything is Jesus. He is our peace. Having, verse 15, abolished in his flesh the enmity. Verse 16, that he might reconcile both us unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So in other words, let's suppose a husband and wife are struggling and they're being torn apart. How do they obtain oneness? It's through Jesus. As they both draw close to the Savior, as they, all, they find peace in him, then all of a sudden they're going to find peace with each other. Jesus is the answer. You'll never find peace without him. Now, just a little Book of Mormon illustration. Do you remember Mike in Helaman, where Nephi, well, the Lamanites attack in chapter 4 and get all the way up to Zarahemla. And Moroniah, who's you know Captain Moroni's son, has to win back the land. And the best he can do is half. The best he can do is get back half the land. Which is pretty good. Which is pretty good. But he can't get back all the land that the Lamanites take. So then... Is this ne the story where he sends in missionaries? Yeah, okay. This is Nephi and Lehi. Yeah. Nephi and Lehi now go down to the Lamanites. This is the fire in the prison where the fire comes yeah. down and encircles them. And ultimately, the Lamanites are converted by Nephi's teachings, and they voluntarily give up the land that they had conquered. What verse is that in? That's the end of chapter 5. Okay. Chapter, one, chapter 4 talks about the fact that Moroniah couldn't get them back. But at the end of chapter 5, after they've been converted, the Lamanites give back the land that they took from the Nephites. Are you okay if I read it? I just found Please it. Please, it. This read is pretty it. cool because from a military perspective, <laughs> what, what a win. So here it is. Helaman 551. And as many as were convinced to lay down their weapons of war and also their hatred and the tradition of their fathers. And it came to pass they did yield up unto the Nephites the lands of their possession. In other words, what Moroniah couldn't do with the sword, Nephi did with the word of God. That's a powerful theme. Yes. Jesus is our peace. He is the one that takes down the wall of partition between us. So you take that in almost every aspect of our life. Um, anyone who has a wall between them, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that will tear down that wall. It, whether it's a husband or a wife, whether it's nations who are fighting against the sword, what Moroniah couldn't do with the sword, Nephi did with the word of God. It, another illustration, do you remember when Alma's going into Zor the Zoramites and the Ramiumptum, and he says he was going to try the virtue of the word of God yeah. because it had a more powerful effect on the minds of the people than anything. And I just think that's what Paul's teaching here is Jesus is the way to bridge the gap. He's the way to bring people who are at odds with each other back together. I like verse 12. It's kind of saying what you're saying in Ephesians 2. He says, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And I, I just know that. Like outside of Christ, it is the world is a chaotic place. Exactly. And then once you come into Christ, I love verse 19. You are no longer a stranger and a foreigner, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. 
And again, that's more than just membership in the church. It's talking about you are embraced in the arms of Christ, and we're all embraced in the arms of Christ. It doesn't matter how long you've been there or how long it took you to get there. Yeah. Once we get there, we enjoy the peace of the Savior. It seems like the total theme of at least this chapter is this idea of one in the body of Christ. One in the body of Christ. He just, and then when we, you know, we continue that in chapter 4 where it says, in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit... There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. It's it just kind of that theme. And so, you know, just one major, those of you who are teachers or parents and want to teach Ephesians to your children, sit them down and talk about the fact that there is no reconciliation. There's no way that we're going to tear down that wall between us except through Jesus and his gospel. I like that. Um, I, I do like, and I, and I want you to talk about this, Bryce. There's, there's these contradictory notions in Christianity of grace. And you know where I'm going with this because yeah. it's like you got it in your mind because you can quote it. Um, there's these contradictory notions of, okay, how is salvation possible? But then in the same text, you have a bunch of verses where Paul says, oh, are you a follower of Jesus, Bryce? Well, giddy up. You better be doing these things. I want to just, before we get into grace, let's just talk about verse 26 of chapter 4. He says, be careful. Don't, don't be full of anger and sin not. Verse 29. Watch how you talk. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. So be someone who edify, uh, that edificare means to build, to build others up. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. So clearly in the end of chapter 4, Paul's saying, man, Christians do stuff. We act a certain way. But then you have this text, and I'm sure everybody who's listening to this podcast who served a mission has heard <laughs> Ephesians 2, you know, 8 and 9. So, Bryce, you want to? I'm going to read it, and then I just want to have you unload a little bit of maybe how this applies. Great. Uh, For by grace you are saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So there you go, Ephesians two. Now, sometimes Latter Day Saints love to quote Second Nephi. You know, we do the same thing. We have our favorite scriptures where we throw out, and we love to quote Second Nephi twenty five that says, "You're saved by grace. After all, you can do." The problem is, we do the exact opposite. Some people say, "Well, you're saved by grace," and Mormons, Latter Day Saints, often say, "Well, you have to do everything you possibly can do," and then all which of a sudden, which is a lot, not, by the which way, which is a lot. <laughs> And neither of them really capture the doctrine of grace as we're taught in the scriptures. And what I love is this idea in Nephi. Nephi teaches this process. He calls it the doctrine of grace, or the doctrine of Christ, excuse me. And he talks about the idea that there's no way you'll get this far without help from Jesus. And then when you do anything with help from Jesus, you get help from Jesus. And then when you do something with that, you get help from Jesus. And then in the Doctrine and Covenants, we have this idea of grace for grace. So imagine this, Mike. Imagine I'm in a dark room and I can't see very well. And this is my life. This room is my life. But I don't see very well. But by the light that I can see, I notice that the tables are in disarray. So I tidy up the tables. Now, based on everything we've learned in scriptures, what's going to happen when I tidy up the tables? When I make an effort to live a godly life, he's going to increase my light. He's going to give me grace 
light ability just a little bit. Now imagine my light goes on a little bit in my dark room. Now I notice that the pictures are crooked. So how come I didn't fix the pictures when I fixed the tables? You didn't have the light. I didn't see that they were crooked. Yeah. I couldn't see them. I didn't have the light. Grace isn't this magical thing that comes in at the end of our life to take us the rest of the way. Grace is a day-by-day increase of light that allows us to see things in our life that need to be fixed. I like that. And then what happens if I fix the pictures? The light goes on. And then I notice other things. And then I fix those things. And then the light goes on. So it's not surprising in a book of Ephesians that Paul says, here are the little steps you need to take to increase light, but there's no way you're going to take those steps without light and grace. And so when you merge those together, you realize, I see how it works. I take the the grace that God has given me, the light that I have, and I take a step forward. And then light comes to show me the next step. It it, it is relational. Yeah. His grace comes when I take a step forward. I've done what I can do. And then when I receive his grace, I see the next step. My grace to him is when I take a step forward. Will you honor him? I honor him. I obey him. I love him. I show a determination to follow him. What's the verse? And I know you know this, and I know we could find it, but we're doing a podcast, so we got we got to keep it moving. There's this really cool verse about what is the point of giving a gift to someone if they will not appreciate the gift? Because the word charis, grace literally means gift. Yeah, and he says, you rejoice not in the giver of the gift or the gift himself. Yeah, where, where is that? Doctrine Covenants 88, verse 31. Okay. 32. We, we got to read that. It's yeah. 88, so this is so good. DNC 88, 32. I love that you know that. I got it marked, I'm sure. Here we go, 88. Uh, this is so good. Um, 33. For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. Uh, but then he says, and again, verily I say unto you, that which is governed by law is also preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. Let me let me take that notion that you mentioned about the lights and the pictures and you know the pictures get straight and then the light gets brighter. Now I see that it's a little dusty, and and, and geek out a little bit on the the world of Greece, the world of the the writers of these documents. In Greece, this word charis was gifts, and so if you were a stonemason and I was a kid that wanted to learn your craft, um, you would take me under your wing. I would be your apprentice, and just the fact that you teach me, Bryce, is a gift. But I don't automatically become a stonemason because tomorrow's a new day. I got to show up for work and I show up for work and you teach me a new thing. And over the course of years, this relational grace, this relational charis, this, in other words, you're helping me, you're blessing me, but I'm also honoring you by carrying on what you're teaching. That's really, to me, how I see it. And really, there's a great book out there, if, if the listeners out there are interested, and not, not everybody's big on reading, but Brent Schmidt wrote a book called Relational Grace, and he's a Greek scholar, and I've probably talked about him before, but that book really opened my eyes to how prevalent it was in the Greek world and how the word grace has changed with the Reformation and with some of those ideas. And, and bless his heart, Martin Luther, I think he was doing his best. Uh, we, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, and I know what Martin Luther was doing. Uh, and I, so I don't want to disrespect any of our Lutheran friends out there, but I also think 
I really, the, okay, I'm going to, the way I read this verse, in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by the gifts of Christ that I'm saved, and not because Mike Day is awesome. I'm not going to, like, through sheer willpower, I'm going to reach to heaven because of the might of my arm. And that's almost like the Tower of Babel uh, polemic, right? Yeah. I'm not going to get there through my own efforts. Verse 9, not because of anything I've done, lest any man should boast. And I'm going to drop one more Book of Mormon reference, but I don't know where it is. But there's this really cool verse where, and I don't remember if he's talking to Nephi or Jacob, but Lehi says, I know that you're redeemed because the righteousness of your Redeemer. I think he's talking to Nephi. That's a powerful verse. Yeah. And anyway. here's, here's Nephi's summary. In 2 Nephi 28.30, he says, For thus saith the Lord, I will give unto the children of man, that's his grace, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And blessed are they who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear to my counsel. That's our effort. For they shall learn wisdom. For unto him that receiveth, I will give more. It's relational. And from them that say, I have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. That's we are saved by grace yeah. after we take the steps forward and then receive his light to do more, to do better, to reach further, to take another step forward. There's no way I would ever have fixed the pictures in my room without the light he gave me to see that they were broken. That's good. But he asks me, once he shows me those pictures, yeah. to fix them. I, I just think there's no way we can do a podcast on Ephesians, Bryce, and not at least talk about that. Great, that's right. Yeah. But the whole book is this beautiful mirror of oneness through Christ, a whole lot of to-dos, and his mercy. And the only way that comes together is if we understand that grace is relational, and that I need to do all that I can, and then I'm going to receive light from him. I like that. That's good. 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 Okay, so we did a little bit of two. Uh, we did some four, chapter four. Let's. Can we do one more thing in four, Mike, yeah, before do, we leave let's it? Let's do some more. Again, this whole concept of oneness, coming to oneness, and then the role of prophets, seers, and revelators in that role. And so in verse 11, he says he gave some apostles and prophets evangelists, which are basically patriarchs, and pastors, and teachers, church leaders. He has given us church leaders for the perfecting of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. In, in other words, I need to see that Prophets, bishops, stake presidents, patriarchs, all of those people given to me in my life are pulling me into the oneness with Christ, to bringing me to a unity. If you want to flip to Doctrine and Covenants section 124, here's a great cross-reference as you teach Ephesians 4 and point out that these gifts were given to us to help us, to pull us into a unity my bishop is a help. He's not, a, he's not there to hurt me. Yeah. He's there to help me. So Doctrine and Covenants section 124, the Lord is kind of talking. Watch him go through this whole list of priesthood leaders. It's kind of a big section. It's a big section. So we're going to go towards the end. Verse 23, 123, sorry. Oh, towards the back. Doctrine, Doctrine and Covenants 124, 123. Verily I say unto you, 
Now I give unto you the officers belonging to my priesthood. That's an act of grace from God. I give you the officers belonging That's to my priesthood. That's a good priesthood. way to put it. They are my gifts to you. So he starts in verse 24 with a patriarch. You want to come to Christ? You want to be unified with the saints? I give you a patriarch. I like that. He will help you come to Christ. Verse 125, I give you a prophet. Verse 127, I give you the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And notice every one of these, I give unto you, I give unto you, I give unto you. <laughs> Even Brigham, 127. 127, I give unto you the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Verse 133, I give unto you Don C. Smith to be the president over a quorum of high priests. Mike, what do we call the president of the quorum of the high priests? Stake president. I give you your stake president. He is a gift to you. That's grace. And then he, all the way down to verse 137, president over the quorum of elders, president over the quorum of the 70s. Verse 141, I give unto you a bishop. Now why? Verse 143. By the way, this is Ephesians. This is Ephesians. It's fascinating. It is. The above officers I have given unto you, and the keys thereof. Why? For helps and for governments, for the work of the ministry and the perfecting of the saints. That might as well just come right out of Ephesians chapter 4. That is brilliant. I give unto you the priesthood and its officers as gifts so that you can come to perfection in God. You can, for the perfecting of the saints. See that, you, that unity? The reason we have a prophet is so that we can become unified and perfect. Now, when you teach that, like let's say we're teaching our children, then you can ask questions. Because your bishop is a gift, what does that mean to you? That's right. And you can have those conversations. Uh, my wife spends some time with some ladies that are really into uh, podcasts about Come Follow Me, Bryce. And she told me, she said that she knows one sister who she'll get out multiple translations of the Bible and she'll read the entire text in the King James and she'll read it in other translations. And I mean, she's hardcore. And then she'll listen to different podcasts and get different perspectives and she'll just do all this work. She'll read the Come Follow Me manual and the family part of Come Follow Me. And she'll do all this work. And I just think there are people out there that are listening that are really seeking, like, what is Ephesians saying? And just in like two minutes, you took them through the Doctrine and Covenants. And from my reading of Ephesians, that's what's going on. That's right. Because if we continue, if you'll go back to Ephesians 4, without these things, we are as children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Why do you need your bishop? Why do you need your stake president? Why do we need a prophet? Why do we need the quorum of the twelve apostles? Why do you need a patriarch to give you a patriarchal blessing? So that we're not tossed to and fro and left vulnerable to the people who are trying to destroy us. And that's the world we live in today. Yeah. I mean, this Ephesians is so relevant. Am I going to listen to some person on the internet that's going to be derogatory towards my faith and tear down the brethren? Or am I going to listen to the brethren, which have been given to me as a gift from Jesus Christ? And I, I just want to bear my witness that when I hear the words of the prophets and when I listen to what they're saying, uh, as I, you know, I'm not perfect, but as I've tried to follow their teachings, 
uh, they've led me to eternal life. They've led me to the blessings, all the good in my life. Bryce, everything in my life that's good is because I've tried to follow that stuff, yeah. uh, their, their counsel and teachings. And there's a really cool line in the temple where we hear that, where hearken to what they have to say and they'll lead you in the path of goodness. Yeah. I know I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but that kind of is, is the message of at least chapter four, right? Yep, you got it. That's it's good beautiful. stuff. So come to a unity come together and you're going to have to do that through Jesus and I've given you the offices of the priesthood so that you can come to unity. Yeah, and then by the way, chapter 5, bunch of stuff to not do. That's right. Um, if To me, if I'm going to be a Christian, chapter 5 verse 3, i got to be avoiding stuff involving uh, immorality and then verse 5, Paul's like, did you miss it? Well, let me tell you, that's not acceptable. Living a life outside of the bounds the Lord has set when it comes to morality is not acceptable. And then I love verse 6. Uh, there's going to be people that are going to try to deceive you. And Paul's saying, don't listen to them. That's right. So, uh, by the way, that's relevant in 2019. There's so many swirling views about what and is and isn't acceptable. And to me, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, Paul's kind of wrapped up in that. The message of Paul is kind of the New Testament. That's so, right. I don't know. I, I don't want to be too preachy yep. about that, but that's in there. That's right. And that's what five is. Five is also. Now, I, I want to tackle a tough subject in the end of five, Mike, yeah. and that is men and women. Household codes, yeah. Um, because Paul does say some things that in our culture can be taken as offensive or inappropriate. My, Paul says in verse 22, Submit yourselves unto your own wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And so people, you know, that... We do not believe that the hierarchical priesthood exists in the church, exists in the home. We practice patriarchal priesthood in the home where husbands and wives stand side by side with equal authority as the proclamation teaches. So how do we, what do we do with these statements from Paul where he says, women submit yourselves to the men because the husband is the head of the men. But then go to verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Husband and wife is a symbol of Jesus and his church. Jesus is the husband, the church is the wife. And this carries over throughout the scriptures. This all isn't just Paul, this is Old Testament. This is all throughout it. The wedding scene is the wife giving herself to the husband and the husband promising protection. And that takes us to Christ, that we are, it's not a male-female issue as much as it's a follower of Christ. We are his bride, and we are giving ourselves to him, and he then becomes our husband and protector. So this is very symbolic, and sometimes we forget that husband and wife is a symbol of Jesus and the church, and we turn it into a male-female issue. He's not saying that women are inferior to men. He's saying that women, the wife, are the membership of the church. We are the, we're the ones that are giving ourselves to Christ, and he is the one that, that's going to protect us. Yeah. It's kind of like women wear the veil. If the veil is supposed to hide her, you know, who should wear a veil? It should be the man because he's uglier than she is. Well, speak but the for yourself, one... <laughs> Bryce. Speak for yourself. Yeah, I've seen your wife, Mike. <laughs> okay, yeah, she's way better looking than me. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, the idea here is why does the woman wear the veil? Because the veil represents the protection the husband is offering. And she is giving herself to him 
for which she receives his protection. Now that is pointing us to our relationship with Christ. I like that. And so after saying wives and husbands and all of this, he says, look, I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's good. And so see this, everything we see, especially in sacred places where some people might be offended by the separation of men and women, we ought to see it as a Jesus member issue that he is all of our husband symbolically and we the church are his bride because in the you know the the whole parable of the ten virgins we're waiting for the bridegroom to come marry his bride well we are that bride yeah i mean this carries over everywhere i mean if you read hosea this imagery is there this imagery is in ruth in, in essence ruth goes to boaz and says cover me and and take me and let me have your name and this is very symbolic um, and I totally love that. I want to throw another reading there. And this one is uncomfortable, but it's just a reading of Paul's day. And Paul, remember, God will meet us where we are. And so scripture comes in culture. It comes in its own cultural packaging. And Paul li did live in a world where the household codes existed. Yeah. And so there was a hierarchy there. And so that hierarchy carries over in chapter 6. So in verse 1, you have the children submitting to the parents, honoring the, honoring them. And then we have this notion of parents, or especially fathers, verse 4, don't provoke your kids to wrath. But then you have verse 5. And we're going to talk some more about this when we do Philemon. But in verses 5, basically to 9, the word in Greek is doulos, and it's translated as servant. And the word for servant in the New Testament is not doulos. There's a word for servant that we'll talk about later, but um, that's not used. There's 125 references to uh, slaves in the New Testament, and most of them refer to property, someone being owned. And so verses 5 through 9 is Paul saying to slaves, be obedient to your masters. And this is really difficult at first. But the seeds of liberation are sown in the words of Paul. I want to be really clear when I say this. Paul is not trying to unravel the entire social structure of the Roman Empire. A third of the people there, we think, probably more, were slaves. As you get to the outlying areas, it's maybe 10, 20%, but think about this, a third. And so Paul's not trying to undo that, but what he's saying is, if you're going to be a slave, if in, and by the way, the Kingdom's translators don't like that word, and so they change it to servant, but if you're going to be a slave, then you be good. You be a good, obedient one. Look in verse 6. Uh, obey them, verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Uh, and with good will willing, I'm, I'm butchering this, verse 7, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. To me, what he's saying in, in the eye service is everyone works hard when the boss is in, in the if you're working at Chick-fil-A, I love Chick-fil-A, everyone works really hard when the boss is there. And when the boss isn't there, our tendency is to kind of chill out. And what Paul is essentially saying is, your service, although you're in bondage, you can still serve as if you're serving Christ. And for years, Bryce, I taught teenagers, and I really got a lot of traction out of this because I would talk to teenagers and say, okay, so you're a student or you're working at Chick-fil-A. You be the best worker you can be because it's really not about you. We're building God's kingdom. And even in something as simple as I'm mopping a floor, I can glorify Christ as being a really good employee. How do you? Yeah, you got to throw that verse 8 in, Mike. I love that you read 5, 6, and 7, but yeah. that verse 8, yeah. knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, 
the same shall he receive of the Lord. Meaning, if you're learning to obey, you're learning to obey is a divine thing, and you're going to receive blessings in heaven because of your obedience. Yeah. So offer it freely. Learn to obey. Yeah. And when we talk about Philemon, we'll talk about some great lessons about slavery and freedom. Yeah, we'll do that. But I just we, I, we had to make that plug. Yep. Do you want to do... It seems like when I was a kid going to... Sunday school, we did the whole armor of God. Do you, I mean, do you want to say anything about that? Just a few that? thoughts. I mean, I do love Ephesians chapter 6. I love Doctrine and Covenant section 27 about the armor of God. Just a couple ideas about the armor of God. I mean, verse 12, we do wrestle against flesh. You know, we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness in the world, against... I love the fact that we're talking about armor and armor of God. And one of the reasons I, I, I want to point this out is at the end of verse 16, as well as in Doctrine and Covenants 27, this is the modern-day equivalent, the armor of God will help us quench the fiery darts. That's an intriguing phrase to me, fiery darts. If I'm wearing armor, why in the world do I care about a fiery dart? I'm wearing metal. Why would I care about a fiery dart? Well, think about it. Imagine me armed to the, t to the end of my body in armor. Where am I vulnerable? Why would anyone want to throw a fiery dart at me? The purpose of the fiery dart isn't to penetrate the metal or to melt the metal. The purpose of the fiery dart is to ignite my clothing that's underneath my armor. So imagine I'm wearing armor, Mike, and someone throws a fiery dart and catches my shirt that's hanging out on fire. What would anyone in armor do if their clothing were on fire? You've got to take it off. They would take their own armor off. Or you're jumping in the river. Or both. And so Satan is throwing these fiery darts at us today, which cause us to take our own armor off. We doubt our armor because of a fiery dart. So I just want to point out, if you want to take some time in your class, in your families, in your homes, point out what is protected by what. So first of all, your loins are protected by truth. That's a wonderful discussion. How does truth protect my loins? How might a false truth make my loins vulnerable? That's an interesting discussion. My loins are protected by truth. My heart, my breastplate covers my heart. My heart is protected by righteousness. My feet or my direction is protected by the gospel of peace. The gospel protects my direction. My shield is protected by faith. My shield is faith. What do you what do you hold up? What did Joseph Smith hold up when they started to persecute him? I had seen a vision. I knew it and I knew that God knew it and I couldn't deny it. He held up his faith. My head, my thoughts, my mind is protected by now later Paul calls this the hope of salvation. The helmet is the hope of salvation. My mind, my thoughts, 
are protected by the hope of salvation. If you have no hope in salvation, what happens to your mind and your thoughts? The sword, which is both an offensive and a defensive weapon, is the Spirit. Without the Spirit, I cannot defend nor advance in this battle. And then there's one more weapon that he adds in verse 18, and that is prayer. So if you're going to, ta that's a beautiful thing to tackle, the armor of God. But focus on what is protected by what. Hmm. How does righteousness protect your heart? And what, what do I do to my heart if I start to transgress the commandments of God? What's interesting is, let me just, one last thought about that one. Do you remember when Eve partakes of the fruit? Mm -hmm. Moses chapter 4, verse 12. First she saw, then it became pleasant, and then she desired, and then she took, and then she partook. Notice the transit, that it went from her eyes, to her thoughts, to her heart, to her hands. And that's Moses chapter then, 4. Moses chapter 4 verse 12. And then and then to her hands and then she partook. And then she partook. So when Moses sin is in our times. hands, yeah. when sin is in our hands, we're touching. Yeah. We're inviting. We're so, doing So you're things. making the connection between the armor of God, protection from sin, and the the way that it relates notice to it's, us. Notice it's hands, it's direction, it's heart, it's head. All of those things protect what I see, yeah. what I think, what I desire, what I do, where I'm going. And that determines whether or not I will be left standing in the it's, battle. It's all related. It's all related. So how does the hope of salvation protect my thoughts? I like that. How does righteousness protect my heart? How does truth protect my loins? And how does the gospel protect my direction? I like that. So this is some really good applicable uh, stuff. This is great stuff today, Bryce, on Ephesians. And I think we're going to end with some stuff on the temple. I take think. it, Mike. So take it. This, this is where Mike said his best, the, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is called the sowed reading of the text. Sowed is the word that's used for secret in Amos 3.7. Prophets stand in the council. They, they're standing in the mysteries. And in first temple religion... Uh, in first temple Israelite religion, the king and queen would put on sacred vestments and they would be glistening and they would be brought into the presence of God. And the author of Ephesians totally gets the symbolism. And he uses the phrase put on in the text and it's everywhere. But I'll just give you a couple. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Put on the whole armor. And the word is in duo. And it means to put on sacred vestments. And so what are they doing? They're putting on sacred vestments. So a sowed experience in Ephesians 6 is, and if you've, if you've been familiar with anything to do with temple, there's vestments that are being donned, that are being put on to approach God, to stand before God. And so there's another way to look at this text, and it's, do you want to stand in my presence? And by the way, when you come to him, you will come and you will stand before God. That's really what the meaning of prophet means is one who has stood in the council, but then they stand before the face of the congregation of Israel and they say, brothers and sisters, Israelites, I've stood in the council. Now I stand before you. I represent God to you. 
And so that's one way to look at Ephesians 6, but it also is another way to look at the entire first chapter. And I'm going to go a little bit slow through the text to kind of introduce some of these ideas and these notions. So verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In other words, it's by the will of God that Paul is an apostle. It's his will. And Paul mentions this in Galatians where he says, I'm not an apostle because men have chosen me, but because God has called me. And to me, verse 1 is God the Father. Paul represents to the saints, which are at Ephesus, but also to the faithful in Christ. So this is a message to us. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord. So this is a message of grace and peace from the Heavenly Father. There's not a lot of texts, Bryce, that really talk a lot about Heavenly Father. I mean, if I were to say to you, Bryce, what verses are there out there that really teach us about God the Father? What do we have? Or, where, he, or where he's talking? Yeah, we have the first vision. Yep. We have where he's introducing his son. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we got a few, but not a ton. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, blessed. Makario. To be in the state of the gods. To be in the state of holiness or holy places. Blessed. To be blessed. Paul's talking temple talk. He's talking, I've stood in the presence of God. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. I think what's going on in verse 3 is Paul's trying to tell the saints that you've received all spiritual blessings in Christ when you were in heavenly places. And I think heavenly places, Bryce, refers to pre-earth council. And in the temple, we read, we learn in the temple that there was a pre-earth council and we were there. Psalm 82, ye are gods and children of the Most High. We were divine beings in his presence and he blessed us with all spiritual blessings and Paul is reminding them of these blessings that they had all of them and this I can't read verse 3 without thinking of Alma 13 right and in Alma 13 where Alma says remember who you are to, so to me this is about identity and the temple is about seeing who you are seeing as you are seen and, and knowing as you are known and coming into the presence of God to be blessed to stand in the presence of God and verse 4 says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Another way to read according is because of. Because of God's will. He wants us to stand before him. Look what it says. Because he has chosen us in him, God the Father. We were in him. Before the foundation of the world, this is pre-earth councils, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This is holiness. God wants all of us to stand before him in love. And to me, that holiness is attainable. And we'll have to do a whole podcast on holiness one day. But in a nutshell, it's my spirit is ruling over my body. I'm being true to what God the Father has ordained me to do. And I'm being true to it because my spirit is in charge and my body is listening. But I'm still Mike Day. I still have my identity. But this holiness brings me to a state of grace where I can stand before him. And, and the only way I know how to talk about this publicly is, is the brother of Jared. And he stands before God and it's, I, 
I wrote it down because I can't remember anything, but it's an ether. I think it's three or four. Three is where he's having his interview with the same. Yeah, and he's before him, and I just I just got to read this. This is so powerful. So to me, ether is first temple Israelite religion. It just is. But chapter three, and he says in verse two, he says, Don't be angry with thy servant because of his weakness. For we know that thou art holy and dwellest in the heavens, and that we are unworthy before thee because of our fall. So he knows who he is. But then he says in verse 3 of chapter 3 of Ether, Behold, O Lord, thou hast smitten us because of our iniquity, and hath driven us forth, and for these many years we have been in the wilderness. Nevertheless, thou hast been merciful unto us, O Lord. Look upon me in pity, and turn away thine anger from thy people and suffer not that they shall go forth across this raging deep and darkness. Bryce, that's where we are. We're in the raging deep. And so he says, touch the stones in verse four. Skip down to verse six. It came to pass that when the brother Jared said these words, the Lord stretched forth his hand and touched the stones one by one. And the veil was taken off from the eyes of the brother of Jared and he saw the finger of the Lord. When I read verse six, I see the brother of Jared, and there is a veil, a cloud, or some kind of obstruction where he can't see the Lord, but he sees his hands. And I read Ephesians 1 verse 4, that we should be holy and without blame, standing before him in love. This is temple, this is temple liturgy to me. This is, this is Paul saying, this is how we come to who we are. This is the identity that we have. Know that God has given you all spiritual gifts. And I and you and all of us listeners want to typologically stand before Heavenly Father. And how do we stand before him? The end of verse 4. In love. We stand before him in love. Uh, verse 5. Having predestinated us and foreordained, predestinated in Greek, same word, unto unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, meaning the Father, according to the good pleasure of his will. The way I read verse 5 is, it is God the Father's will that I stand in his presence. Now, there's so much more. Okay, I'm going to take a couple more minutes. I hope that's okay. To the praise of the glory of his grace, verse 6, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. I, to me, that's Christ. In other words, Christ has made it so I can stand before God because of his atonement, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through Christ's blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And then you get verse 9 where it says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Brothers and sisters, as you read Ephesians, note how many times Paul uses that word. Mysterion, mystery, it's a temple word, and it means to receive the secrets and to be careful how you speak about them, to, to hold them sacred. And there's so much, but go down to go down to verse 12. That we should be the first, or that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. That's Abraham. That's Alma 13, where Alma says, in the pre-earth life, you exercised exceedingly great faith. That word faith is pistis, and it means deep and abiding trust. And the symbol for pistis in the Greek world is the handshake. And to wax a little Disney, it's a little bit cheesy, but there's this line from Aladdin my wife and I just watched where, and I forget, do you remember the name of the kid in Aladdin? 
he's such a cool kid, but he's on a magic carpet and he meets, I think it's Jasmine, I'm really bad with, with details, but he's standing on a magic carpet and he puts out his hand and she looks at him like he's crazy. There, he's standing on this magic carpet and he's 15 stories high, right, in the sky. And he says, do you trust me? And she takes him by the hand. And then she has this marvelous experience where she goes, I mean, who doesn't want to go on a magic carpet ride? But in essence, that's pistis. Like, do you trust me? Take me by the hand. Bryce, it's Peter where Jesus says, do you trust me? And Peter's like, well, if you're really who you are, then let me walk in the water. And that's powerful stuff. Verse 13, we trusted him. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. That verse, verse 14 of Ephesians 1, earnest is a term that we use in contracts today. If I want to buy a house, I give earnest money. And it's my way of saying, I'm serious. I haven't paid for the house. I call the house. But I, Bryce, I'm serious. I want to buy your house. Here's $5,000. It's my earnest money. And what does that $5,000 do for me? I'll hold it for you, Mike. Yeah. I'll hold it for you. The way I read verse 13 and 14, and this is powerful, and it's just in my bones, and I believe it. It's that it's God's will that I stand before him in holiness and the way I know that I'm on the path is verse 13. Every time I feel the Spirit, brothers and sisters, if you're reading this podcast and you're reading Ephesians and you're feeling inspired, it's God, he's putting earnest money on you. And he says, my son did this. I'm putting my money on you. Now our job is to know who we are. In the beginning of Ephesians where, where Paul says, you were in heavenly places and God gave you these gifts. I just have a testimony that every person we walk across that we see is godly inside. We just don't know it because we're in the sea of chaos. This is all temple text. And whoever wrote this knew it backwards and forwards. And they knew Christ. And they knew the veil. And they knew what the brother of Jared knew. And it's just, it's pretty awesome. I mean, I just, I love this stuff. That's awesome, Mike. That's a great insight. Uh, we'll put some of this in the show notes, some of the stuff that we didn't talk about. Um, I, I guess well, maybe we just end here, just leave my, my testimony, my witness that this chapter, chapter one, is about Heavenly Father and how he feels about us. And what, I love verse 18, he wants the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened so that we can get the glory, the glory of his riches. And it's all because of Christ. He, he's done it. My witness is of him. It's in and it's in and through Christ that we're saved in no other way. So grateful for him. I'm grateful that this is here. I'm grateful for some of my teachers that have helped me understand Ephesians. David Smith is a huge asset, and I've referenced him before, but um, LeGrand Baker wrote uh, a powerful book that talks about the temple called Who Shall Ascend, and I've referenced it before, so go get that book. It's so good. So that's all I have, Bryce. Are you good? I'm good. It's okay. been grateful. To, I just love Ephesians. I love the concept of oneness and coming, tearing down the barrier. And, and he is our peace. I just hope we'll all put on that armor, put on those righteous robes, and stand next to him and with him and find peace in our lives. All right.
We'll see you next time. See you, everyone. <laughs>